finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where we read things, we talk about it. Andrea is my mom and a librarian. I write stuff. I'm not my mom. Uh, on this episode, we read Breakfast at Tiffany's by Truman Capote. So, Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of Truman Capote's most popular uh, published items. It's a novella, Mm -hmm. and it was published in 1958. And the edition that we read was the vintage reprint from the 90s, and it had three other short stories with it. Yeah. But we only read, I read the entire book, but we're only talking about Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. Uh, we also watched the movie, which we'll talk about later, I guess. The movie came out, I think, what, three years after the the novella? Yeah, and I think this is... I mean, we'll talk a lot about Holly Golightly as a character, but I think the iconic imagery of Breakfast of Tiffany's, the movie, with Audrey Hepburn in her black dress and her cigar, uh, cigarette holder, is kind of like become this sort of like fashion icon. Yeah, yeah. So Truman Capote was born in 1924, and he died in 1984, and he's a Southern writer. And I think his most well-known... I mean, he wrote a lot of short stories. He wrote a lot of articles and essays and commentary during his career. But I think he's most known for two things. One is In Cold Blood, which is his creative nonfiction novel, mm-hmm. which I think now would be, like we said, his creative nonfiction, but he called it a nonfiction novel, which is kind of like, it was based on a crime that happened in the Midwest, and Capote both investigated the crime as a journalist, and he also wrote about it in the novel that he wrote. Would you, would you say that he invented the true crime genre? I don't think so. Because I've heard some people say that about... In Cold Blood, that it's the first work of true crime. I think what he did was he elevated true crime writing to a sort of a literary um, level. Because at the time, there were lots of like pulp stories about sensational murders Mm. and true detective was like a huge thing. You know, there's detective pulp magazines that had like stories of like sensational crimes and things like that. When does In Cold Blood come out? Do you have the year? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I believe it's in the 1960s. Okay, so yeah, so that's that's after like the uh, like even the crime comics. 1966. Yeah, but I think what he does is instead of turning it from like you know a kind of a trashy story, a, a book that you would buy like in the train station, he elevates it to. Um, a bestseller, a well-written novel, you know, it's creative. It, there are parts, it's all true, but what he did was the conversations and, you know, the setting and things like that, he added his descriptive elements, which was why he calls it a non-fiction novel. It's interesting that you say that he, you know, elevated this, the true crime thing, into the literary sort of scene. Because I can't actually think of another example. I think right? of... One of the things that I was thinking a lot about when I was thinking about Truman Capote was thinking of sort of his legacy with In Cold Blood. And what I came up most, I thought about two things. I thought about 
Eric Larson and his mm-hmm. creative nonfiction stories. But then I also thought about something about, like I'll Be Gone in the Dark, where mm-hmm. it's sort of like um, it's a well written, well researched book that becomes like a phenomenon. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I could see both of those. But I think he also, I mean, people know he had a relationship with Harper Lee. Sometimes she's listed as his cousin. Sometimes they're listed as being friends. It's really... And the one of the characters in, supposedly at least, one of the characters in To Kill a Mockingbird is based on him. Yeah. I can't remember the character's name. But... And then there's also, there's the literary conspiracy theory that he wrote To Kill a Mockingbird, which I think... Has pretty much, since the release of, go ahead, of Watchmen, that has been pretty much put in the ground, right? Well, yeah, and I think it was interesting because when Ghost Out of Watchmen came out, like, true internet sleuths, there was a lot of analysis of the writing using, like, plagiarism software to mm-hmm. kind of evaluate the, the artistic writing style of Harper Lee, comparing it to Truman Capote. And they didn't match, but I think he had a lot to do with the shaping of that novel. Yeah, well, I mean, if they were friends, I feel like there's a pretty... There's, a, like, a not really a chance that he didn't help her in some way, but I, I, he, I don't believe he wrote it, but there were, there were some people that strongly believed that for a while, at least. And I'm glad that that sort of has kind of faded away. I'm really not a fan of a lot of those, like, true authorship conspiracies. I fucking hate the ones about Shakespeare. yeah. Well, you know what I think? I think part of what stirred that pot with Harper Lee and Truman Capote is Truman Capote himself was had this persona. He was like one of those, like, at that time in the 50s and 60s where you had a celebrity writer. Yeah, he's sort of one of the, the, the like, uh, archetypal celebrity writers. Like, if you, like... If you watch a movie or a show or a cartoon or something, and there is a celebrity writer character, there's like a 30% chance that they're going to be a thinly veiled stand-in for Truman Capote. Like, there's lots of other dudes that fit that, but he's one of the main ones that they draw on. Yeah, and I think, like, when people think of writers, they think of, like, toiling, like, endlessly in front of your computer and, like, starving and living in a studio apartment... But I think, like, Truman Capote made a career of being, like, a celebrity society writer. Yeah, we've talked before about, like, the writer that goes on talk shows and shit. Yeah. Like, he sort of is in that mold. Yeah. But, I mean, he was, like, he was an interesting, because in the time that he was writing, in the time that he was a celebrity, he was also openly gay. He talked Mm. about his sexuality. There's a lot of people who criticize him because he wasn't, an advocate for gay rights, which was starting to become an issue at that time. He kind of he kind of distanced himself from that and I think that sort of tarnished his reputation, especially now when people look back. Yeah. You know, he could have done so much more in the early stages of like gay activism and he chose not to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean he was still alive in the eighties during the AIDS crisis and he'd really kind of stayed silent which i think was a a huge mistake on his part yeah um it's also his sexuality was the cause of some controversy with in cold blood too right about him being involved with one of the killers well i think if you read the other one of the stories in 
Breakfast at Tiffany's is called The Diamond Guitar, and it's mm. a story about an older prisoner who has a relationship with a younger, more a very attractive prisoner that comes into their work camp and, you know, kind of affects his life. And I think, like, if Truman Capote had a type, it was probably dangerous criminal bad boy. You know, mm. that's kind of what he pined for because that comes up constantly in his Yeah, he was a real... Oh, fuck. Never mind. I can't remember the name. He's a real, uh... The cousin from... The fucking... Oh, God. I'm gonna cut this whole thing out. I'm gonna look up the thing that I'm trying to think of. I think if Truman Capote liked a book, he probably loved Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. Yeah. No, I've got a really solid joke that I'm gonna edit all this out before I make it. He's a real cousin Lyman. (laughs) <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Another Southern writer has come back, but I think of, when I think of Truman Capote, I think of like his personality and how he was like very much interested in New York City society. He was a gossip. He was sort of like an outgoing kind of party guy. He liked mm-hmm. a lot of attention. He liked to do eccentric things, and he amassed a lot of really important socialite friends. And then from these socialite friends, he sort of forms Holly Golightly. And I think that's one of the things that makes this book so popular at the time that it's written is every one of these socialites who knew Truman Capote and read this book thought that she was the basis for this character. Yeah, there's sort of like a a bunch of competing real-life Holly Golightlys. At least one person sued him, right? Yes. But I think... Capote, his career is sort of centered on these two really big outbreaks in Cold Blood and Breakfast at Tiffany's. And the rest of his work was critically acclaimed, but never had that best-selling... He never hit that bestseller again after these two books. So by the time he's in his in the 1980s when he is older and he's sickly and he's starting to die, mm-hmm. he takes up with a socialite, Johnny Carson wife and he ends up living in her bungalow and he dies and there's this kind of confused there's this like legal case there's this confusion about what happens with his ashes and Carson's wife says that she has half of them and half of them went to somebody else and there's at one point his ashes were stolen and it was kind of like controversial about what actually happened to Truman Capote but he sort of kind of died like out of fashion and desolate and kind of like not involved in the scene that he was involved with for a long time but one of the funniest things that i found when i was reading about capote was that gore vidal the the writer who's Mm. almost sort of like his capote's legacy is directly linked to gore vidal Mm. he said when he found out that capote died that it was a wise career choice for him gore vidal (laughs) is the meanest human being who's ever lived every quote from him is him utterly, like, anytime someone's like, oh, you, you know, Gorbachev once said, it's always him utterly destroying someone. Uh, but I and that it, is totally savage. That is, yeah, that is a very sick burn for poor Capote on his deathbed. If he was alive and he heard that, he probably would really appreciate, like, Gorbachev's wit, but I thought it was hilarious that, like, the writer that influenced you the most on his deathbed, you say, like, it's a wise career move. I mean... Yeah, wow, that's brutal. Also, I, mean, I want to shout out if any, that there's a really good. Well, 
I don't know if the movie itself is really good, but Capote has a really great performance by Philip Seymour Hoffman as Capote. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, he's really become sort of in the culture, in like pop culture. He's become very relevant. I mean, like you said, there's lots of like nods to this like classic Southern writer that you see in different, you know, Mm -hmm. venues. And they're usually based on Truman Capote. He had this sort of iconic sort of Southern look. You know, he yeah. wore a hat, he wore the seersucker suit, he wore the, like, not quite the white Tom Wolf suit, but mm. he wore, like, you know, like a really pale tan suit when other men were wearing dark, subdued colors. Yeah, it's also, um, like, in addition to the, oh, lots of celebrity writer characters are based on him, it's also, like, that he's one of the, like, archetypal southern dandies. Like, if that character shows up, it's usually somebody doing a Truman Capote impression. Uh, what else am I going to say? Uh, I lost it. But let's talk about, before we start talking about the plot of the movie, let's talk about Holly Golightly, this sort of character that, because we talk a lot, like, one of our, like, unofficial themes of the Dried Up Brain podcast is the character that becomes more than a character in a book. We talk about this a lot. Yeah, I think the way I've put it before when we were talking about Sherlock Holmes and Conan the Barbarian, is there the the character that becomes an archetype? And I think, like, uh, this is maybe, of those two, like, if we're, if, of the characters we've talked about like this before, I think that uh, Holly has the most problematic legacy, weirdly enough, because I don't think... The thing that loom, the specter that's looming over this whole thing is the manic pixie dream girl. Now, anybody who doesn't know what that is, it's a term I believe that was coined by the critic Nathan Rabin in not a review of Elizabethtown. I think it was a retrospective on it, and he did a series uh, called like My Year of Flops or something like that, where he talked about you know famously unsuccessful movies. And Elizabethtown is a hugely unsuccessful movie. It's also very ironic because the movie is about the idea of the fiasco versus the failure, and it is a fiasco. But uh, the Manic Pixie Dream Girl is this archetype that you see in movies like Elizabethtown. The, probably the biggest example in like more recent memory is uh, Natalie Portman's character in Garden State. It's this like, or you know, Zoe Deschanel has made a whole career out of playing these characters. They're, like, eccentric women who come into a protagonist's life and, like, help a male protagonist, like, find themselves. And they exist entirely. They're, like, these inhumanly perfect beings that exist entirely to serve, uh, to heal these male characters. And that's not what Holly Golightly is. But so many of those Manic Pixie Dream Girls are, like, poor simulacra of Holly Golightly. Yeah, I think... But I think what's interesting about this character, Holly Holly Golightly, is that Holly's lasting memory is based on the movie and not the book. Sure. Like, Audrey Hepburn and her depiction of Holly Golightly and her sort of... The visual trappings of her have become so iconic to that movie and to that book that she's become this sort of 
when people think of Holly Golightly, they think of Audrey Hepburn. And then even like her fashion icon status is based on the stylings of the way that she looked in this movie. Yeah. But I think it's weird that so many, I mean, it's so many young women kind of like identify with her Mm -hmm. for some weird reason. I mean, we made a joke about like in every female dorm room, there's that picture from Breakfast at Tiffany's where she's eating the Danish and looking into Tiffany's because they identify so much with this character. But I think this character is so... Well, maybe because she's so flawed, maybe that's what they kind of see. But I think the movie sanitizes what Capote was making this character be. Yeah. Because in the movie, she's this sort of, uh, you know, kind of bumbling, like, innocent playgirl. And in the books, she's like a scheming, like gold digger it's also like the movie gives her a happy ending whereas like the book sort of ends on like a sour note i mean i think the the movie is about like oh you gotta like heal and like become you know foster an attachment to another person and the book is sort of more of an exploration of how uh, trying to avoid fostering any attachment turns you into kind of like a broken ghost of a person. Yeah. A li- she kind of becomes almost a literal ghost by the end of the uh, by the end of the book. But it's like in the movie she's like you know this this kind of like even when she's being a gold digger and she's planning to marry Jose it's kind of this kind of like innocent kind of sweet quirky behavior but in the book, she's straight up, like, a female predator. Like, she is, like, manipulating him so that she can marry him and become wealthy. Yeah. I, well, I think, like, in the book, she's got a weird sort of mix of, like, this kind of calculating, self-serving nature and naivety, naivete. And that first part is, like, hugely downplayed. In the movie, I think the movie. Well, we can maybe talk about it a little more, like later on. But I think the movie is plagued by leaving certain things in from the book that just create sort of weird inconsistencies in the movie. Yeah, but I mean, well, let's get into the book then. Let's talk sure. about it. So the plot is broadly described. It takes place in the nineteen forties, mm-hmm. so it's still during World War Two. Yeah, which makes the book make way more sense than the movie. Right, and so it takes place basically in a brownstone in New York City, and at the time the brownstones were kind of like low-rent apartments, they weren't the high-end, you know, showpieces that they are today, and a writer moves in to one of the apartments, and he meets this eccentric uh, party girl, and he sort of takes up with her, but more observes her. Yeah. And then, you know, shenanigans happen, and... It's Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it basically it's basically just a series of snapshots of this guy's relationship with this woman from start to finish. Uh, does he get a name in the book? He doesn't have a name in a book, but his name is Paul in the movie. In the movie is Paul. In the book, he does not have a name. She calls him Fred because he reminds her 
of her brother. Though I think that that's supposed to be bullshit. I don't think he's supposed to be anything like her brother. She's just so desperate for... Like, she has disconnected herself from every other human on Earth. And she has this sort of, like, in-stasis connection with her brother. And so she kind of, like, calls him Fred as a way to, like feel closer to her brother who's like away at war like that was my always my interpretation of yeah and i think that the fact that she never even attempts to learn his name is another sort of sign that she's a predator and she meets people and immediately slots them into the slot of what they can do for her so she meets the writer and he, he becomes the sort of you know, he gets her into her apartment when she loses her keys. Mm-hmm. He brings her stuff. He takes care of her when she has her emotional breakdown. Yeah. And he, when later on when she gets arrested, he helps her. So, I mean, he, she immediately sees him as a useful person to have in her life, but she's not, she's never going to attach herself to him. But I think what's interesting in the book is that in the movie, it's very clear that he's a love interest for her. Yeah. But in the book, He's not. In the book, their relationship is much more complicated. He talks about loving her or being in love with her, but then immediately backtracks on that and and indicates that it's not like a romantic kind of love. I mean, in a way, his relationship with her sort of mirrors her relationship with her cat. Like, and that's something I think that comes up a lot is the idea of, like, names are important in this, animals are important. Like, she talks... She the cat is like an obvious like reflection of her, especially at the end uh, when her ex husband quote unquote shows up. She talks about how he was like constantly taking in wounded animals and compares herself to that. Like I think that part of the idea is like his, the the narrator has such a strong connection to her, mostly just because she does need his help, and like it becomes like this. Like, not that she's his pet, or he's, yeah, not that she's his pet, but it's, like, not dissimilar to that. She's, like, this wounded creature that's, like, around the space where he lives that he, like, wants to help and wants her to acknowledge that his, like, she needs his help, and she just doesn't, refuses to do that. Well, I guess we should say at this point that this book is very problematic, and there are things in there that really have not withstood the test of time. Yeah. And one of them is is that her her backstory is is that she grew up in this sort of rural area. Her and her brother were left to fend for themselves at one point. And there's a story where she gets caught trying to steal turkey eggs by this older man who's a veterinarian. He says he's a horse doctor. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. he takes her and the brother in when they're I guess children, and then when she turns 14, she marries the doctor, and his name is Doc. Yeah, Doc Golightly. She takes her last name from him. Um, Yeah, that whole thing is, like, really fucked up. There's this really weird part of that where he keeps talking about her children that she has, but they're not her children. They're his children from a previous marriage, but he's decided that she has some sort of, like, ownership over because she was married to him i think that this this is in the book and in the movie that this doc lightly subplot 
Uh, I think it's worse in the movie. In the book, I, I feel like it's more ambiguous whether or not we're actually supposed to feel any sympathy towards Doc. I think it was probably written with the intent that we would feel sympathy, some level of sympathy toward Doc. But the way the book is written, because it has this very... Um, I mean, I think it's supposed to be like a journal, right? Like the the book like it doesn't have like a very clear framing device but it has like this this um straightforward like telegrammatic sort of writing style it's very sparse and matter of fact so the book doesn't really get into a lot of like editorializing with the events so you can read it and be like well the writer's not making a judgment on doc but i can make my judgment that he's a, actually a monster but the movie, like, one, it casts Jed Clampett, who everyone is immediately sympathetic towards. Uh, and it plays, like, all, like, sad music over him. And he's giving this really, like, aw shucks, like, broken down, soulful performance, which is just, like, it becomes gross. Well, yeah, and I think that the way I interpreted it from the book, when she tells the story and the story comes out... Is that he is the sort of, he is the reason, that he is how she learns how to do what he did to her, Mm -hmm. to other people. Because even though he's sort of this sort of sympathetic character in the movie, he's just as much a predator as she is. He marries a 14-year-old girl to find a wife and a mother for his children. Mm-hmm. And then he comes to the city to try to get her back because he needs someone to take care of his children. Yeah, I don't think the book is written from the perspective that like what Doc did was like fully evil and abusive. But I think we're, by being a fairly thorough character study, it weirdly ends up being kind of a solid depiction of the effects of that sort of abuse. Because... The narrative is presented like Holly gives this speech like, oh, I'm like a wounded bird you found and you can't heal a wild animal because the, it gets better. It wants to fly away. And she presents this as like, oh, it was like my essential nature that I ran away and became this like detached person. But you can also very easily read it as like, well, the reason she doesn't want to form any attachments with people is because when she did, she was massively taken advantage of and abused by this older man. So why would she want to foster any of these meaningful connections with people when she knows they could just as easily turn into something horrific. Yeah, and I think, like, whatever... I mean, he kind of makes it seem like he cared about her. Like, there's this weird part where he said she didn't have to do anything. She could just read magazines and get fat because the children did all the housework. So he didn't understand why she wanted to leave. It's also like, what do you, do you not care about your children, Doc? What's up with your relationship with your kids? And then it's like the weird part where he kind of... It's the same thing he does in the movie, but it's less effective because he sort of dangles this sort of um, carrot of her brother who is like her younger brother. And he's in the army and he kind of hints that like he's about to get out of the army and he's not going to have a place to live. Mm -hmm. And then she's kind of like upset about that because she can't take care of him. So... But like we talked about when we were watching the movie, this is actually an adult man. Yeah, I believe the thing that I said was like, oh, an able-bodied young white man that was in the army could never survive in New York City. 
<laughs> like, so that was be kind of fine. Like, that's like Truman Capote not understanding um, the army because obviously he was never in the army. Yeah. But that's okay. So she escapes from Doc and she moves to the city and she reinvents herself as this sort of society party girl. She's not well, she- a part of society because she doesn't have the money or the connections. Mm-hmm. But she's sort of got this bohemian sort of reputation and she brings a lot of like important cafe society people together in these random parties and that's how she earns her living and it's not really clear in the book or in the movie if she's an actual prostitute but one of the, it's very clear in the book that she takes money from men for having sex with them but in the movie she takes tips yeah it's it's all very coded it's it's a lot like that part in uh you know, like in the Maltese Falcon where he gets a guy's uh, business card and he's like, mm, smells like lilacs. And like, we're supposed to know what that means. Like, it's it's a lot like that. Like, she talks a lot about like people giving her money when she needs to go to the bathroom. Like. But I mean, there's a kind of a scary scene. This is how she meets Paul. There's kind of like a scary scene where she takes a man back to her apartment and he's drunk and very agitated and she needs to escape him. Yeah. So after she meets Paul in the hallway of the apartment, she ends up climbing up the fire escape and entering his apartment as a way to escape from this violent, drunken man. Mm-hmm. And he comes back the next day and he says, wasn't I really good to you? Didn't I like give you money and give you and pay for all your bar tab for you and your friends? And she's kind of like blows him off. But it kind of like shows you that she's like in this sort of precarious situation where she's taking up with men that she wants money from, but she can't really sort of manage them because they get drunk and unruly. And that's a lot of times where Paul has to step in. Yeah. And help her. Also, before, before in her backstory, before she gets to New York, she goes, she's in Hollywood briefly. And she's going to be an, an actress in like... A big movie and then she pieces out on that and abandons the film and the production uh and escapes to new york i thought that was interesting because the guy who's the agent there's this like scene and it's in the movie and it's in the book where she's hosting this sort of um bohemian type party and all these people are there and one of the people that's there is his name like og or something like that oj oj he's the agent he asks the writer slash Paul, if he thinks that Holly is a phony. Mm. And the response is, she's a phony, but she's an authentic phony. Yeah. And it's kind of like, it shows you that, like, no one really sort of understands what Holly is about. Yeah. So the, at the party, we meet some other characters from the book. Yeah, this is R- where some of the other problematic stuff comes in rusty trawler who's this babyfied rich man who's always a man child he's always looking for his next wife and then we meet jose who is this brazilian diplomat very wealthy Mm -hmm. eligible bachelor and we meet mags wildwood mags wildwood who's also an actress slash gold digger yeah and a model and she's like the I guess she's like a reflection of Holly. Like, Holly's like charmingly eccentric, and Mags is like scary, like to the point of being like sort of unhinged. Well, yeah. In the book and in the movie, there's a part where she gets completely drunk 
And well, in the book, it's kind of really even more scathing because she shows up with these two eligible bachelors and Holly gets a little bit jealous and she starts spreading this rumor around that Mags has some kind of disease. Yeah. Like a sexually transmitted disease. But, but in the movie and in the book, she ends up drinking so much that she faints and each and the depiction of her fainting is like a tree falling over. Yeah, they literally, they literally yell timber as she's falling over. Yeah, and like I think it's in this part where they start. This book has like a strange fixation on lesbians and specifically on denigrating them. I mean, I guess this is like an old timey thing, right? Like back in the day, like gay dudes hated lesbians for some reason. <laughs> but like that's that was like a thing. Like that's why like I that's sort of the necessities of like the LGBTQ. Alliance is like to stop gay dudes from fighting with lesbians because they're they should actually be united. Well, I don't know what that I don't know if that's like a stereotype that Truman Capote kind of perpetuates or if it's like I don't know, but he's very mean to lesbians throughout this book. Well, he there's a we'll get into it because like I think there's a lot of things that Truman Capote is mean about, and I think that is one of them. But it kind of is kind of weird because throughout this book you kind of get this kind of impression that maybe like holly is bisexual yeah and then she starts talking and she's the one who starts talking a lot of trash about like wanting to get a lesbian roommate so because they're good housekeepers and kind of like they protect her and it's kind of very strange i i feel like that stuff it feels like it was something that someone actually said to him at some point. That feels like a weird opinion someone would tell you and you would just stay in your brain forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but then she gets super close to Meg's Wildwood over the course of the book and they're living together for a huge chunk of it. Well, there's a weird scene where... And then she tells Meg's Wildwood that she's a lesbian to make her stop worrying that she's going to steal her boyfriend. Well, and then she does end up... They end up reverse happening where Mag steals Rusty Trawler... Who Holly was grooming to marry as the fourth Mister Troll, Mrs. Troller. Yeah. So then they have a falling out, but there's this weird trip where her and Mags and Jose go to like Florida or something. Yeah, and, and she, with Rusty, who gets sick immediately. And then so she ends up, she admits that she ends up sleeping with Jose, and Mags find out, and she's very upset. Yeah, and it's kind of implied that like. There was some kind of like, like, multi-person relationship going on while they were in Florida. Yeah. Like they were so either they were swapping boyfriends or sharing partners in some way that's supposed to be like vaguely sexual and vaguely avant-garde that Caputi kind of hints about, mm-hmm. which you're not really sure what's going on, but you're supposed to think they're like that's how Bohemians act. Well, yeah. Well, and a part of the character of Jose is that he's super protective of his image because he's, like, a diplomat. He comes from, like, a rich family in Brazil. And so it's like he's clearly, if he's that as paranoid as he is presented as being in the book, he's clearly doing something that is potentially putting his reputation in danger that he's worried about people finding out about. Yeah, but before we get to what happens, because he's responsible for part of the fallout that ends the book. But yeah. there's a plot point in there where, and it's in the book movie too, where she is 
very disorganized and she sleeps too late and she wakes up and she realizes she has to go to Sing Sing. Yeah. And to meet her friend, Sally Tomato. And as she's explaining to the writer, as she's frantically getting dressed so she can catch the train to Sing Sing, he, she gets paid $100 a week to visit Sally Tomato. And he gives, her, he gives her the weather report, which she has to report to, this is my favorite, exceptionally specific detail, gives it to the lawyer and they meet at the hamburger heaven. Yeah. Which he buys her a hamburger and gives her $100 mm-hmm. for getting this information. And all she has to do is dress up nice and pretend to be Sally Tomato's niece. Yeah. Uh, and they have like it is like a relationship that is consistent for her. one of the few ones where like she goes and she talks to him and she seems to genuinely like him uh, but it uh, is also this it's pretty obvious from the beginning when she explains what she's doing that she's whether or not she realizes it which I'm sure she does because she's not portrayed as being stupid uh, she's currying information between this mobster and his mob lawyer. And that's how he is, like, managing his affairs from inside Sing Sing. Uh, And so it's, like, another example of this, like, it looks to all outside observers like a real meaningful relationship and connection. But it is just a way for people to make money. It's purely a transactional capitalist interaction. Uh, And that's, like, kind of how her whole life is. Like, all her relationships are, are actually just a way... For someone to get something, and sometimes she's the one getting the thing, and sometimes it's someone else getting the thing. And I think that's part of why the fallout that happens later on in the book is so intense, is because that's she is it is revealed to her that that relationship that she thought wasn't transactional, the one that she thought wasn't transactional, was actually. I think it's pretty clear in the book that she knows what's going yeah. on. But in the movie, the movie plays her a little dumb. Yeah, because at one point, she takes Paul to meet Sally Tomato. And she in, says, that's a weird weather. He says, like, it's snowing down and There's going like, to be snow flurries in New Orleans or something like that. Right. And she was like, that's a weird weather report. And, like, so it's kind of like, she's supposed to be, like, this kind of, like, bubble-headed. Yeah. Like. Well, I, I also, I want to say, in the movie, uh, he is played by Alan Reed, who is most famous, possibly, for being the voice of Fred Flintstone. And he sounds... Exactly like Fred Flintstone. He also kind of looks like Fred Flintstone. Yeah, I think so. Uh, I and mean, he's kind of got a career playing like... He's a character actor. Yeah, like thugs and kind of... Well, yeah, I mean, if you think about Fred Flintstone's voice, right? Like, he's like just super gruff, like, dude. Uh, but yeah, so there's that whole Sally Tomato thing. Sally Tomato, very funny name. Later on, when she gets arrested, the newspaper headline says... Uh, cops pinch tomatoes tomato yeah i thought that was pretty funny so that's so that's what happened so she does this and at some point uh her and the lawyer get arrested for in this narcotics Mm. um sting and she ends up going to jail but after she finds she has this sort of like meltdown. She has like two or three meltdowns in the book, and she starts talking about things that she calls the mean reds, which are kind of like it's like the blues, but instead of sad, you're mean, right, and angry. And she she gets she has one episode where that happens to her when she finds out that Mags marries Rusty Trawler behind yeah. her back, and then she has another time after she finds well, out. So Mags marries Rusty Trawler. She starts her relationship with Jose. 
she's going to marry Jose and have kids and move to Brazil. But there's a period, and she becomes very domesticated, and she changes her whole life, and she learns to cook, and she buys these records so she can learn to speak Portuguese. And there's sort of a hint that oh, maybe she's pregnant, or she she's con- pretending is. to be pregnant so that Jose will marry her. I think she's pregnant. I think I maybe got the the order wrong. Hold on. So she so she becomes domesticated and she's wooing Jose and she reforms herself and she stops having parties and inviting men over and she sort of redoes her apartment to be more um, traditional and less avant garde and she learns to cook and then that's when she says she's going to go to Brazil. Yeah. With Jose and then Jose is has not asked her to marry her. But she thinks that he will once they get to Brazil. So at the same time that this is happening, she gets arrested. But at some point before that, she finds out that her brother died. Right. And this is... Which causes the first, like, or one of the major breakdowns that she has. Right. And that's, that's when she goes into this long story about how the mean reds are different from the blues because it's when you feel that way but you're also angry. Mm-hmm. And then there's a story, this is how the book is named. She goes through one part where she says the only thing that makes her feel better when she has the mean reds is having breakfast at Tiffany's. And if she can find a place where she can feel how she feels when she's having breakfast at Tiffany's, she will put down roots and she will name the cat and then she'll feel much better about her life. But it never happens because every time she tries, she thinks she's on an even keel and she's saving money and she's doing things that she's supposed to do. Something happens and wrecks everything. But it's usually just herself wrecking her own life. Yeah. And the cat is a recurring symbol. She, The cat does not have a name. It just showed up. She refuses to name the cat because the cat doesn't belong to her and she doesn't belong to the cat. And then that becomes really important at the end of the novel. So yeah, so she gets arrested while she's, during the phase in which she is planning to marry Jose. Right, and Paul has to help her. Yeah. He contacts O.J. Berman, gives her instructions, they bail her out. He, while he's collecting her stuff for her from her apartment, he gets a letter from Jose that is breaking things off with her because he needs to protect his reputation. And this is the part that sort of kind of confused me because... She, while she's in jail, she has like a medical emergency and she gets sent to the hospital. And this is where Paul slash writer. a horse riding accident before she gets arrested. Oh, that's right. The horse riding accident. She takes Paul. I mean, we keep calling him Paul, even though he's only called that in the movie. But it's easier than just saying the writer or the narrator. She takes Paul to the park to ride horses. That's like, yeah, like going to be like they're going away thing. Like, we're going to do. Weird, they cut this completely out of the movie. Um, but. You know, that's going to be like they're going away thing. Like, I think he hasn't ever ridden a horse. Yeah, he hasn't ever ridden a horse. And some mean, <laughs> some mean children yes. pop out of the bushes. This is another and problematic his horse. I feel like this must have. I don't know if it was on a horse or not, but I definitely feel like Truman Capote got bullied by some children <laughs> on the street and put it in the book. <laughs> Uh, but they, was it hard really? Yeah, possibly. <laughs> they scare his horse, and his horse goes wild. And there's this like comical uh, horse chase through New York in the at, towards the end of the book. Um, and she, you know, gets roughed up in that process. But they manage to save his horse, and like 
he takes her back he's taking her back to her apartment and like while she's like resting up and cleaning herself off after the horse oh no he's in the bath nude he's resting and right cleaning himself off after the stressful horse accident she gets arrested and he's like naked and pleading like so much of the book is like about the imagery of like wounded and and the and wounding and like being like sick and like all that shit and so when she is brought to her lowest place he's like literally the most vulnerable a human being can possibly be in that his clothes are off and his veins are open but I think we forgot to mention. See, we're see, we're just like Holly Golightly. Well, the we're, book is very is not it's super tightly structured. Well, we forgot to mention. It's very episodic. That there's a in the book, but not in the movie. There's a pesky older nosy woman that keeps threatening to call the cops on Miss Safia Spinella, I believe is her name. Right. She keeps threatening to call the cops on Holly to have her arrested because she's a low-life individual, according to this woman. Yeah, and she's like a classic, nosy, busybody, older woman. And so, I don't know, is it, it's not confirmed, right? She lets the cops into the building. She lets but I don't know them. if it's confirmed that she was the one that ratted Holly out to the police. Well, it's the same thing that happens in the book and the movie, is that there's a lot of, like, plot pushing that happens around the fact that Holly either loses her keys and can't get in the front door, or the front door is unexpectedly left open. So even though it's supposed to be like a secure brownstone, there's lots of people in and out in the hallways and things like that. And I guess we didn't mention this because this is the most problematic oh, part God. of the... Nate is already cringing. As, yeah. as a person who's too woke to be able to enjoy anything, he cannot watch Breakfast at Tiffany's without cringing at Mickey Rooney's portrayal of an asian american mr. man Yunioshi. so mr Yunioshi is it's, a character in the book but he's only a very minor character in the book he is another person who lives in the brownstone who eventually moves out and he is a f- magazine photographer and and kind of like a little bit of a pervert yeah he's a little bit of a creep so that he's he was like he trying to-, to get holly to take some pictures with him at one point in exchange for letting her back into the apartment and at one point he takes some pictures with mags wildwood and he's just kind of around as, like, another neighbor. In the movie, they give him Miss Safia Spinella's uh, role. So his role is greatly expanded. And he is played by Mickey Rooney with, like, fake teeth in and doing a horrible Japanese accent. And he's, like, this uh, cartoonish, like... Short fuse, like Yosemite Sam, but a racist Asian caricature. <laughs> and he's always wearing like a kimono and doing like traditional Japanese things in his apartment. When Holly interrupts him by buzzing at the door and he comes out and he yells at her. And like there's like slapstick stuff where he hits his head and it's just really bad. Just really bad. Yeah, that does not stand out. That... So Paul slash the writer finds out that Holly is in the hospital. Yeah. And in the book, it's kind of, it's implied that she may have had a miscarriage. She says, I lost a baby. Right. Like, I mean, it's not like super thoroughly discussed, but I mean, yeah, I think the book, I think, makes it fair, like, is much less ambiguous about this. Okay. But what I was going to say is you're not quite sure if her taking up with Jose is a way to sort of legitimize her baby. Mm Mm-hmm. 
or the baby is a way to force Jose to marry her. But anyway, he doesn't know about the baby. And when she gets arrested and spread all over the news because he's a diplomat and his family is very traditional, he writes a letter to Holly and breaks up with her. Well, he knows about the baby. He doesn't know about the miscarriage because the letter he specifically, the like most stinging part of the letter is where he wishes her the best of luck for her and her child. Disowning the child and also not acknowledging its, the you know, premature demise. Uh, in one move, which is like really, uh, yeah, like I said, really stinging. Yeah, and I think that's kind of like that's not in the movie at all. And in fact, like you don't even while she's doing her domesticated part of preparing to marry Jose, you don't even see him in the yeah in the movie. It kind all. of disappears too in the book. Like he's like off doing other business. Oh yes, he's being a diplomat in Washington. Yeah. But in the movie, the part about the horse is replaced with this sort of happy date day montage of her and Paul doing all the things that they have never done before. And that kind of like absorbs some parts from earlier in the book where they're like hanging out and they go to Tiffany's and she's like, let's steal something. Like they sort of fold that into this big date sequence in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. So she ends up, she decides, she, in the book she decides she's going to go to Brazil anyway. Mm. And part of the book that's happening before and after the incidents that are going on is you see the writer who was with his friend Joe who owns the bar, the dive bar that they always go to. It's also where they get their phone messages. Right. He's trying to, they're trying to discover where Holly is because in the beginning of the book in another inappropriate sequence oh that's also where mr yunioshi is important again because the book opens with mr yunioshi running into the writer and showing him a photograph of this do you want to talk about it this is the yeah it's a, a, a african carving that he saw when he was on some kind of uh assignment assignment he works for a magazine this is the part that i thought this was equally inappropriate as much as as you know mickey rooney's role as the it takes a lot to be more inappropriate mickey rooney's performance he shows a a photograph to the writer of an african a traditional african sculpture and it's holly's face which i'm glad i never got to see (laughs) what a bit rough (laughs) so, so then they realize that you know after she left the United States and she went to Brazil and he he's in contact with her and he learns that she's like having a hard time finding a suitable rich man that she marries. She takes up with a married Brazil Brazilian businessman and she gets set up in an apartment and at some point she leaves that and then she goes apparently to Africa and she's sort of doing this world traveling thing where she's being Holly but in different countries. Yeah, she gets to kind of do something for her. I guess I give her transportation or something. In exchange for posing for him to do this carving. Right. So Joe and the writer are trying to find out where Holly is because it turns out that all three of them, Mr. Yunioshi, Joe, and the writer are all in some levels in love or love Holly and want to find out what happened to her. And that's where the story sort of unravels from that going back to hell 
the writer met Holly and how she ended up leaving New York. Yeah, he sort of it starts there and he flashes back to meeting her and tells the story looping back around to the opening. So I think so what happens is she after Paul writer in the book. Yeah. Picks her up in the he wants to take her to a hotel, which is what OJ said to do, take her to a hotel to keep her safe. Yeah, and he's paying for a lawyer that's supposed to help her. Right. She decides to take the ticket that she's given, same as in the movie. The ticket that she's given to Rio and to go there. Yeah. And then... Because she's never been to Brazil before, which is the same justification you used for escaping to New York when she was supposed to film that movie. Right. And I think what happens is every time she gets stressed, she just flees. Yeah. So, but there's a kind of a part where, I guess, which is not a happy ending for the cat in any way, is that she just lets the cat... cat That's a happy ending. Well, she lets the cat out of the... um, cab and then she runs away and then Paul jumps out of the cab because he's had enough of Holly and her bullshit mm. and he goes to look for the cat and he keeps looking for the cat and he this is like the epilogue he says that he has been looking for the cat for weeks and then he looks around the neighborhood and he sees the cat in a window in an apartment and he realizes the cat has been taken in and now the cat has a real home well, yeah, so they're in the cab she's going to the air she commandeers the cab to go to the airport and they're driving and she's explaining what she's doing and she's going to leave. She's made Paul collect all of her stuff from her apartment, including the cat, which was like a disaster for him because the cat hates him. And he has to put the cat in like a drawstring bag and it keeps biting him through the bag. And she makes the cab driver stop in Spanish Harlem and she releases the cat into the street. And she's like, yeah, this is good for you. You are an alley cat. And like, this will be a good neighborhood for you to live in. And then when they get back into the cab, she has this breakdown and I think he like calls her out for it or something. And then she has this breakdown where she she had been insisting the entire time that the cat didn't belong to her. And it wasn't her cat and it was just a nameless slob. And then she starts crying and she says, you know, it was my cat. And I think that that's sort of, that moment is like an encapsulation, I think, of her whole story. It's this idea that like you can't have a cat in your house that you feed and live with and it not be your cat and you can't have people in your life and not have an attachment to them and so she releases this cat under the illusion that she and the cat were living in this totally uh promise free unattached way and it is only when the cat is irretrievably disappeared into the streets of spanish harlem that she realizes that that wasn't the case that she did have an attachment to the to the cat Because it's impossible not to, and that by living a life where you pretend you don't have any attachments, you make yourself completely miserable and lonely. And, like, by the end of the book, like, she, like I said, she basically becomes, like, a literal ghost. Like, she's, like, a a figure of legend that exists only in whispers that pops up in, like, weird places and pictures like a cryptid because she's become this, like, completely detached spirit that has, like... Like, it, she's more real as the carving than she is as a physical human being because she's refused to foster any of these meaningful attachments. And at the end, the writer finds the cat weeks later uh, living in another house with, like, and he looks healthy and he's, like, in a window of, like, a warm home. And he's like, I don't know how, but I, I felt, like, I knew in that moment that the cat had a name. And it's like, the cat has found, like, a place where it belongs because it was willing to belong somewhere and Holly is still on the run because she isn't. 
Well, I think you're right because part of the conversation between him and Joe and Mr. Uniashi in the book is they're recounting places they had seen her. Yeah. And I think that sort of reinforces that. But, like, she releases the cat to become a stray cat. The cat, because it's smarter than her, <laughs> becomes a, a house cat and she becomes a stray cat. Uh, there's also this whole thing in the book where she buys Paul a fancy birdcage. Yes. And makes him promise never to put anything in it. And I think the birdcage is like a reflection of their relationship. Like, a birdcage is a thing that you have a pet in. Like, it's a symbol of a relationship. It's the physical form of a personal relationship you have with a bird that's your pet. And so it's like, but there's nothing in it. It's empty. And that's what his relationship with Holly is like. It has all of this shape of a real meaningful human relationship. And he does all this, the work that you would need to, to build the relationship, to build the birdcage, but there's nothing in it. There's no connection. Well, it's interesting in the book, he, the, he gets the birdcage mm. and he tells a story about how he carries it all over the world to all these different apartments and he's still attached to the birdcage. In the movie, she gives him a typewriter ribbon. Yeah. Because he's a writer. And this is why I was talking about, like, we, I said, like, does this have anything to do with, like, J.D. Salinger? Because <laughs> there's, like, lots of references that made me think about him. And one of them is, is, like, Paul is this sort of writer. He has writer's block. He hasn't written in years. But he published this critically acclaimed book called Nine Lives yeah. or something. And that's, and so she, he says, oh, I've been writing. And she says, well, your typewriter doesn't have a ribbon in it. And then... She gives him the ribbon and he gets his writer's block is cured and he starts writing. And then there's this weird part where he gets paid $50 for a story and they have a fight and he gives her this giant check and it says $50 on it and says, here's $50 for the restroom, baby. <laughs> I thought that was like, really? like. But she, in the movie, she's the one with the birdcage because they, they show it. And it's got it. a stuffed bird. Yeah, it. they show it at the party. And also like the book... The cat has this sort of independent lifestyle, like the the windows open so the cat mm. can come and go. But in the book, in the movie, he's like this lovable like sidekick. He's this cute little orange cat, and there's like always scene like there's a scene where she's feeding him sardines, and they're both sitting in the sink, and then he's at the party, and everybody's having this weird bohemian party, and you see the cat like sleeping up on the shelf, or when she domesticates her house and turns it into sort of a Brazilian-inspired house. There's a scene where the cat is, like, sleeping on the... There's, like, a bull's head on the wall. Yeah. And, and the cat sleeping. is sleeping on the... Yeah, the cat's very charming in the movie. Well... And then there's my favorite scene in the movie where she just releases the cat. You're like, get out of here, cat! And then they show the cat, like, he's in jail. He's, like, between the bars of, like, a fence and the rain is... And the cat's all wet. He has his two front <laughs> paws up on the bottom part of the fence. Like, he literally does look like he's in jail. But so, I mean, like, that's, like... A lot of this goes into, like, the differences between the movie and the book, right? So, like, in the book, he's unpublished. He's a, he's a real uh, Nate type situation. And... One of my favorite parts in the book is a, like, college magazine or something agrees to publish one of his stories, but they're not going to pay him. And he's excited, and he goes to Holly, and she's like, that's stupid. That's bullshit. <laughs> like, you're never going to be a successful writer if you think that that's good enough, which is, like, true. Like, it's a thing we've talked about on this podcast before, like, the idea with the, like, oh, if you're going to self-publish, you have to be comfortable with maybe only ever self-publishing. Like, and that felt really, like... Those parts felt like Capote really drawing on his experiences, like being a writer and interacting with other writers, 
It felt really real to me. In the movie, he's already successful, but he's fallen into this slump. And, like, the thing, like, she becomes, like, his muse, I guess. Like, she literally gives him the physical tool. Like, the they end up together. So, like, that's the big difference between the movie right. and the book. Is in the, the movie is a love story where they end up together. So, in the book, she gives him this hollow representation of their phony relationship. In the movie, she gives him the physical material that he needs to do his work. And she becomes, like, his muse. The the Like I said, the book is about, like, an exploration of how trying to be free from attachment makes you lonely. The movie is about, like, two people who need to help and heal each other. Whether or not you think that's, like, terribly successful is, is another question. So, like, in the book, the cat disappears, and then he finds him later, and the cat has a new life separate from Holly. And, it, like I said, the cat is, like, this big symbol. In the movie, they release the cat, and then they decide that they're going to be together, and they find the cat again. Like, and the cat, I guess, is a symbol for, like, the relationship. And then there's a part where they make out in the rain with the cat smooshed between them. Yes. Uh, They're a family now. Yeah. I feel like there's, there's too many inappropriate parts of the book to make it stay culturally relevant. Yeah, but I think what's going to keep Holly Golightly in the pop culture domain is this movie. But so I want to get back to the manic pixie dream girl thing because I think that the reason that archetype exists is because of people not getting this. It's like they're either not getting the book and they they just like like Holly unironically and aren't ignoring what the book is trying to say about people and human relationships, and so they create this. Like, version of Holly where it's, like, it's got all the things that make her charming, and then also you get to end up with her, like, completely invalidating the sad ending of the book. Or it's people misinterpreting the movie, and it's where the movie is, like, Holly helps Paul, and Paul helps Holly, and it's this equal thing where, like, they're both in a bad place, and they they heal each other, and instead, they cut out the part where Holly needs to be healed and remove all the work that the man has to do, and it becomes entirely about the healing of the dude's pain. See, that, I mean, that, yes, that's valid. But I think it's kind of more, I have a more vapid take on Holly. I think that the trappings of her life appeal Mm. to a certain, a person in a certain point in their life as well. I think we're kind of talking about two different things. I'm talking about people, characters inspired by her. I think you're more talking about people that connect. Yes. With her. Yeah, because I think the people who identify with her, identify with her based on the visual and sort of transparent outer layer of Mm. Holly Golightly, where she's this whimsical, bohemian, free spirit. She's very stylish. She's very, in. you know, she has no inhibitions. Mm. She's very honest. And I think that, like... They kind of identify with that part of her and kind of like leave the part, the problematic part of her personality behind. Yeah, I mean, well, honestly, it's based, it's pretty much exactly the feminine version of people identifying with like Tyler Durden. But I think it's like there's. Or the Joker. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of like. Characters that are, like you said, are Holly Golightly inspired, and they're all like this kind of like absent minded but wholesome, 
uh, you know, free spirits that kind of like, like you said, they come in and they like interact in your life and they make your life better because it, you know, you learn about yourself, but it's not necessarily like she comes in and she changes the man's life. There's plenty of like flips on that where like, you know, you, you get this whimsical roommate who becomes your best friend and teaches you about life. And yeah. I think that that's not what Holly is. I think she's kind of like a troubled, like damaged person who has these sort of weird defense mechanisms which are portrayed in the movie as being whimsical and bohemian but in Mm. the book are like troubling and i think that's missed yeah it was i had never i'd seen the movie before i'd never read the book before and it was really like um it was really surprising just kind of how dark and bleak the book actually well, is. Well, that's what I was going to... I mean, that's what my note says. My book, my note said the book is edgier than the movie. Oh, by far. And it's but, much more complex and, I think, mature in general. Yeah. I mean, the movie is like a big, flashy, like, Hollywood love story. I like the movie, except for the really awful Mickey Rooney part. But I think the appeal of the movie to me more than anything is... As a showcase of, like, the technical skill of directing. Like, it looks amazing. Like, this, all of the set design and the scene pacing and the way the camera moves through these spaces are, like, really cool and impressive and are something that, like, anybody who's interested in filmmaking or visual storytelling in general, even if you want to, like, make, like, comic books or whatever, it is something I think you should study. Also, all the costumes are really great. But, yeah. like... I don't super love the the characters in the movie. And I think the book is much more interesting as an example of a character study. Of, like, how do you... Using, like, a relatively limited amount of space. Like, the book is pretty short. Um, to craft a really thorough and kind of haunting portrait of a character. I think that, like, this, like we talked about this when we, we watched it. We both read the book and we watched the movie again. And we talked about this sort of, this the party scene mm-hmm. especially. Like when, you know, she's like depicted as having like a very small apartment. Mm-hmm. And then they have this party scene where it's like spatially there's too many people that could actually yeah. fit in the apartment. And that kind of like, that kind of like iconic like party out of control sort of scene that happens in a lot of movies that you see now. There's that like the wackiness of like knowing your neighbors mm-hmm. you know like that kind of there's that whole thing about like you know we've seen that a lot of times in movies like a door opens and somebody yells and then it's kind of like you get them and then there's going up and down the like fire escape as a way to communicate with your neighbors and that kind of thing that kind of like um imagery of like New York lifestyle becomes like very important and a lot of it stems from like seeing it how it's depicted in this movie one of the things I liked about it was I liked the scene where they go to the library Mm -hmm. and she wants to see his book and she convinces him to like sign it which I thought was a nice touch but I kind of like the movie was I, I don't know like why People think it's such a great movie. That's what kind of boggles my mind. I like the use of like Moon River, how it's used in like five or six different ways. Yeah. It's like, you know. The score score is by Henry Mancini and it's really good. 
but yeah, they, that's like a recurring leitmotif, but it's in like several different contexts. Because that is the sad music they're playing over uh, Doc giving his story. But it's also like the music that they're playing in the triumphant moment where they kiss in the rain. Right. And then she does an acoustic version. There's an instrumental, like different um, orchestrations of the parts of this music that go throughout this sort of story that tie it together. Yeah. And I think like the parts that are like problematic about it, that kind of really about the book and the movie together kind of like really overshadows like. It's like, oh, this is a whimsical romance, but it's like, this is a story about, you know, child abuse and, uh, you know, like, mental illness, exploitation. There's, like, um, some kind of, like, disparaging view of, like, sex work. Like, is she a prostitute? Is she an escort? Is she getting money for doing things? Mm -hmm. That's kind of problematic. And then Holly herself is kind of, like problematic she is she a predator is she like a surviving or is she like at ad, you know like adapting to her like environment is she learning anything is there any kind of like personal growth you're I, not really I, sure i would not want to call her a predator i can't really imagine a way in which like she is interacting with these rich successful men she is never going to be the one who's got fully got the upper hand even if they are, like, kind of pathetic figures like Rusty Trawler. He's still, like, a rich dude in the 40s. But, I mean, you have to agree that she is not a whimsical bohemian No, no, she's, she's a much, like I said, the whole book is much more bleak and uh, has, I think, a much, like, darker view on the character of Holly than the movie does. The movie is mostly interested, I think, in being this love story. And like I said, there's like weird stuff that's left over from the book that feels strange in the movie. Like the Rusty Trawler and Meg stuff never really feels like it totally pays off in the movie because they're like really only in one scene. And then like her brother dies in World War The book is set during World War II. The movie updates it to being set, I guess, in the late 50s, early 60s when the movie came out. So her brother dies in the war in the book, which makes perfect sense. He is, in the movie, he's gonna get released from the army because his tour is, of duty is over. And then he just suddenly dies in a jeep accident on the army. Yeah, base. that's kind of lame. Like, what? It's so weird and deflating. But I think there's pro. What I'm saying is there's problems with this book that I... Yeah, I don't think the book is perfect. I think it's got a fair amount of problems. We talked about them. I think, like... You know, this is not a book that I would necessarily recommend to anyone if the dude who wrote it was still alive. But I think just, like, with the Lovecraft stuff, with Raoul Dahl, like, there's stuff to be gleaned from this that I think is easier to swallow because you don't have to, like, you know, see this dude saying whack shit on Twitter. But I think there, it should be noted that there are sexist things in this book. Sure. The depiction of Holly as sort of, like, a gold digger is kind of, like... Yeah, I think it's one of those things where her character is thorough enough that it would be less of a problem if there was, like, a counterpoint. But there isn't really, like, a positive female character. The only other major female characters are the busybody neighbor and Mags Wildwood, who's portrayed as being, like, what if Holly wasn't likable? But I think, like, in the 50s, it's a chronic problem where 
liberated, evolved females are seen as predators. And I think that that's a problem that Truman Capote himself perpetuates, which I think is problematic. Yeah. I also think that there's like, his depiction of Mr. Yunioshi is kind of racist, even in the book. And this is like post-World War II. And he's kind of like embracing that sort of like, World War Two, like anger against the Japanese, which I think is embraced in this book. Mm-hmm. I think that the comments that like Holly makes about like the people, like the kids in the park. I mean, obviously the kids in the park that startle the horses are African American kids, yeah, and they kind of make this kind of like disparaging remarks about them. And I think like that whole thing with like. The African woodworker. I feel like that is problematic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I feel like, well, we know that Truman Capote is not an advocate for gay rights, even though he is openly gay at the time. But I feel like the comments and the way he depicts people, like the whole comments about the lesbians, that's kind of, one, it's not needed. Yeah. Because it doesn't know anything for the part. And like you said, it's sort of like this vignette that like, Somebody said something, and he probably word for word put that in there because he thought it was hilarious. But I feel like even if you're not openly active and being an advocate for gay rights, you don't need to be diminishing like your own. There's also a weird offhand thing towards the end of the book where the writer is describing the person that moved into the apartment after Holly and it's like this dude she's obviously supposed to be gay who is like regularly punched by his partners yeah I... which is like grim and doesn't feel totally necessary it just sort of feels like I'm being like well here's another example of how the world is bad and sad there you go but I mean um, like and it's like not really dealt with in any way just sort of like talks about it and then moves on to the next thing he's talking about. Well, I think part of like why those things are never addressed at any time is because when people think of breakfast at Tiffany's, they think of like Audrey Hepburn eating that Danish. They don't like... No, no. Yeah, you're totally right. But like my question to you is, does this book stand the test of time? I mean, it's not really even that old. Uh, Well, the book is from 58. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's not that old. Uh, I don't know if it's... I think, like I said... Well, I sort of said my piece on this before. I think, like, it's really compelling as, like, a exercise in character study. Um, and I think that, like, there's some interesting technical stuff to examine in, like, the way the book is written. Like I said, it has this very sparse style, but it's not like a muscular sort of sparse style like a Hemingway it it does feel more like a really refined take on like correspondence or like journaling uh but I think like the book is super problematic like I I would be wary of anybody that was like this is my favorite book but (laughs) if somebody told me that they thought it was interesting I'd be like I agree well tell me talk about the quote that you told me from Norman Mailer Oh, yeah. Norman Mailer, like, fucking loves his book. And he said that he wouldn't change a single word in it. Let me see if I can find the actual quote here. Uh, yeah, Norman Mailer said it was the mo- that Capote was the most perfect writer of my generation and that he would not have changed two words in Breakfast at Tiffany's. So, I mean, some people were really into it. I mean, I think it is a pretty, like, 
like a technically well written book that has a lot of problematic elements. But I think the things that it does well, it does well. But like I would qualify my enjoyment of it in like exactly the same way I would I qualify my enjoyment of HP Lovecraft. Well, let me tell you about the rest of the stories in this. Okay, sure. Book. There's one story that's about prostitute from Port-au-Prince who takes up with a man and gets married and realizes that her married life is not as good as her pre-marriage prostitute life. And at one point, he ties her to a tree because she's disobedient and her prostitute friends come and rescue her. And at the end, she decides that she'd rather be a abused housewife than to go back to her life as a prostitute. Okay, that's bad. And then the second one I think I told you about was about the older prisoner on the work camp who takes up with a younger prisoner who has a diamond guitar. And then the third story is about a young boy who was abandoned by his parents and lives in his family home in the South. And it's about his really old, sort of mentally declining aunt who he has this fond memory of her and him making fruitcakes for Christmas. Okay. And then there's a scene where they split a glass of whiskey and the little boy gets drunk. And then the people who live in the house, who always he refers to as people who live in the house, who may or may not be his parents or his grandparents, get mad at him for being drunk. Huh. And then he, at some point they decide... Wait, he just says, like, people that lived in the house got mad at me? Yes. That's weird. The weirdly reminds me of the, the parts in Grendel where he just mentions that there are other creatures in the cave. Yeah, that's exactly mm. what this is like. And at one point, her mental facilities decline so much that he gets sent to military school because she's such a bad influence on him. And that's a fond memory from his childhood that he's written as a story. So it's kind of like these are all like whack. <laughs> I mean, the last one sounds like the least whack of the... Well, I don't know. I mean, depending on how it's written, the prisoner one might not be that bad. The prisoner one is kind of reminds me of a Flannery O'Connor story, but the boy, the Christmas story one, reminds me of, like, when you have a really bad childhood and you don't know you have a bad childhood, and then you're, like, talking about it, and other people are like... everybody didn't do that? (laughs) Well, you didn't pay a nickel for a glass of whiskey and get drunk with your grandma? Like, like... What? Like, he, that's a fond memory for him, but it's like verging on child abuse. Same thing is like with this story. Yeah. So I'm like, if someone says to me, like, what Truman Cabote should I read? I would just say, just read In Cold Blood or read his like essays and stay away from the rest of that shit because it is weird. Fair enough. Do you have anything else to say about this? No, I think we pretty much covered it. I'm not sure what else I have to say. Uh, the guy who plays Paul in the movie is the dude that plays Hannibal in uh, the A Team. He also oh, and that was another we never even talk about this. Patricia O'Neill, mm-hmm. Patricia Neal, the actress. She plays an older woman who is like the yeah, writer oh, is like a kept man. So in the book, you're like, how does this guy pay rent? Um, and at one point, he gets like of a like job. A, a menial job. Um, but in the movie, he's in a relationship with, like, an older woman who's married. Who wears married. a lot of capes. I love the capes. Yeah, with, like, high collars, and she, like, gives him money. So he's, like, he and Holly are much closer in character in the 
movie than they are in the book. It's like I said, the movie becomes about like their mutual connection and healing. The book is like about how she's a sad person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's like a running detail in the movie. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. So what are we reading next? Uh, we are going back to The Wicked and Divine. We're going to read uh, Volume 5, The Imperial Phase, Part 1. Which, spoiler alert, has something to do with Pet Shop Boys. The Imperial Phase is the phase of your career, of an artist's career where their creative and commercial peak coincide. And it was coined by the dude from the Pet Shop Boys. So, cue up some Pet Shop Boys while you're reading it. All right. Um, I guess that's it. I guess we're done, right? I think so. Spoiler alert, stay tuned. Bye, everyone.